0: Chapters 22 and 23 of A Comic History of the United States. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading by Allison Hester of Athens, Georgia. A Comic History of the United States by Bill Nye. Chapter 22. More Difficulties Straightened Out. Van Buren, the eighth president, was unfortunate in taking the helm as the financial cyclone struck the country. This was brought about by scarcity of funds more than anything else. Businessmen would not pay their debts, and though New York was not then so large as at present, $100 million were lost in 60 days this way. The government had required the payments for public lands to be made in coin, and so the treasury had plenty of gold and silver, while business had nothing to work with. Speculation also had made a good many snobs who had sent their gold and silver abroad for foreign luxuries, also some paupers who could not do so. When a man made some money from the sale of rural lots, he had his hats made abroad, and his wife had her dresses fitted in Paris at great expense. Confidence was destroyed, and the air was heavy with failures and apprehension of more failures to come. The Canadians rebelled against England, and many of our people wanted to unite with Canada against the mother country, but the police would not permit them to do so. General Scott was sent to the frontier to keep our people from aiding the Canadians. There was trouble in the Northeast over the boundary between Maine and New Brunswick, but it was settled by the commissioners Daniel Webster and Lord Ashburton. Webster was a smart man and a good extemporaneous speaker. Van Buren failed of a re-election as the people did not fully endorse his administration. Administrations are not generally endorsed where the people are unable to get over six pounds of sugar for a dollar. General Harrison, who followed in 1841, died soon after choosing his cabinet, and his vice president, John Tyler, elected as a Whig, proceeded to act as president, but not as a Whig president should. His party passed a bill establishing the United States Bank, but Tyler vetoed it, and the men who elected him wished they had been as dead as Ramsey's was at the time. Dorr's justly celebrated rebellion in Rhode Island was an outbreak resulting from restricting the right of suffrage to those who owned property. A new constitution was adopted and Dorr chosen as governor. He was not recognized and so tried to capture the seat while the regular governor was at tea. He got into jail for life but was afterwards pardoned out and embraced the Christian religion. In 1844, the anti-rent war in the state of New York broke out among those who were tenants of the old Patroon estates. These men, disguised as Indians, tarred and feathered those who paid rent and killed the collectors who were sent to them. In 1846, the matter was settled by the military. In 1840, the Mormons had settled at Nauvoo, Illinois. They were led by Joseph Smith, and not only proposed to run a new kind of religion, but introduced polygamy into it. The people who lived near them attacked them, killed Smith, and drove the Mormons to Iowa, opposite Omaha. In 1844, occurred the building of the magnetic telegraph, invented by Samuel F. B. Morse. The line was from Baltimore to Washington, or vice versa. Authorities failing to agree on this matter it cost $30,000, and the boys who delivered the messages made more out of it than the stockholders did. Fulton, having invented and perfected the steamboat in 1805 and started the Claremont on the North River at the dizzy rate of 5 miles per hour, and George Stevenson, having in 1814, made the first locomotive to run on a track, the people began to feel that the Theosophy was about all they needed to place them on a level with the Seraphim and other astral bodies. Texas had, under the guidance of Sam Houston, obtained her independence from Mexico and asked for admission to the Union. Congress at first rejected her, fearing that the Texas people lacked cultivation, being so far away from the thought ganglia of the East also fearing a war with mexico but she was at last admitted and now everyone is glad of it the whigs were not in favor of the admission of texas and made that the issue of the following campaign henry clay leading his party to a hospitable grave in the fall james k polk a democrat was elected his rallying cry was i am a democrat the mexican war now came on General Taylor's army met the enemy first at Palo Alto, where he ran across the Mexicans 6,000 strong, and, though he had but 2,000 men, drove them back, only losing nine men. This was the most economical battle of the war. The next afternoon, he met the enemy at Resaca de la Palma and whipped him in the time usually required to ejaculate the word scat. Next, General Taylor proceeded against Monterey, September 24th, and with 6,000 men attacked the strongly fortified city, which held 10,000 troops. The Americans avoided the heavy fire as well as possible by entering the city and securing rooms at the best hotel, leaving word at the office that they did not wish to be disturbed by the enemy. In fact, the soldiers did dig their way through from house to house to avoid the volleys from the windows, and thus fought to within a square of the Grand Plaza when the city surrendered. The Grand Plaza is generally a sandy vacant lot where Mexicans sell tamales made of the highly peppered but tempting cutlets of the Mexican hairless dog. The Battle of Buena Vista took place February twenty-third, 1847, General Santa Ana commanding the Mexicans. He had 20,000 men, and General Taylor's troops were reduced in numbers. The fight was a hot one, lasting all day, and the Americans were saved by Bragg's artillery. Bragg used the old colonial method of rolling his guns up to the nose of the enemy and then discharging an iron foundry into his midst. This disgusted the enemy so that General Santa Anna that evening took the shreds of his army and went away. General Kearney was sent back to take New Mexico and California. His work consisted mainly in marching for General Fremont who had been surveying a new route to oregon and had with sixty men been so successful that on the arrival of kearney with the aid of commodore's sloat and stockton california was captured and has given general satisfaction to everyone in march eighteen forty seven general scott with twelve thousand men bombarded vera cruz four days and at the end of that time the city was surrendered at cerro gordo a week later scott overtook the enemy under general santa anna and made such a fierce attack that the mexicans were completely routed santa anna left his leg on the field of battle and rode away on a pet mule named charlotte corday the leg was preserved and taken to the smithsonian institute it is made of second growth hickory and has a brass furl and a rubbery racer on the end general taylor afterwards taunted him with this incident and though greatly irritated santa ana said there was no use trying to kick puebla resisted not and the army marched into the city of mexico august 7th the road was rendered disagreeable by strong fortifications and 30,000 men who were not on good terms with Scott. The environments and suburbs, one after another, were taken, and a parley for peace ensued, during which the Mexicans were busy fortifying some more on the quiet. September 8th, the Americans made their assault and carried the outworks one by one. Then the castle of Chapultepec was stormed, First, the outer works were scaled, which made them much more desirable, and the moat was removed by means of a stomach pump and blotting pad, and then the escarpment was upended, the Don John Tower was knocked silly by a solid shot, and the castle capitulated. Thus, on the 14th of September, the old flag floated over the courthouse of Mexico, and General Scott ate his tea in the palace of the Montezumas. Peace was declared February 2nd, 1848, and the United States owned the vast country southward to the Healer, and west to the Pacific. The Wilmot Proviso was invented by David Wilmot, a poor, struggling member of Congress, who moved that in any territory acquired by the United States, slavery should be prohibited except upon the advice of a physician. The motion was lost gold was discovered in sacramento valley in august eighteen forty eight by a workman who was building a mill race a struggle ensued over this ground as to who should own the race it threatened to terminate in a race war but was settled amicably in eighteen months one hundred thousand people went to the scene thousands left their skeletons with the red brother and other thousands left theirs on the isthmus of panama or on the cruel desert. Many married men went who had been looking a long time for some good place to go. Leaving their wives with ill-concealed relief, they started away through a country filled with death to reach a country they knew not of. Some died en route while others were hanged and still others became the heads of new families. Some came back and carried water for their wives to wash clothing for their neighbors. It was a long, hard trip, then, across the plains. One of the author's friends, at the age of 13 years, drove a little band of cows from the state of Indiana to Sacramento. He says he would not do it again for anything. He is now a man and owns a large prune orchard in California, and people tell him he is getting too stout and that he ought to exercise more and that he ought to walk every day for several miles, But he shakes his head and says no i will not walk any today and possibly not tomorrow or the day following do not come to me and refer to taking a walk i have tried that possibly you take me for a dromedary but you were wrong i am a fat man and may die suddenly some day while lacing up my shoes but when i go anywhere i ride when he got to sacramento where gold was said to be so plentiful he was glad to wash dishes for his board, and he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into the fields for to feed swine, and he would fain have filled his system with the California peaches, which the swine did eat, and he began to be in want, and no man gave unto him, and if he had spent his substance in riotous living, he said, it would have been different. About thirty years after that, He arose and went unto his father, and carried his dinner with him, also a government bond, and a new suit of raiment for the old gentleman. I do not know what we should learn from this. End of chapter 22 Chapter 23 The Websters Daniel Webster, together with Mr. Clay, had much to do with the compromise measures of 1850. These consisted in the admission of california as a free state the organizing of the territories of utah and new mexico without any provision regarding slavery pro or con the payment to texas of 100 million dollars for new mexico which was a good trade for texas the prohibition of the slave trade in the district of columbia and the enactment of a fugitive slave law permitting owners of slaves to follow them into the free states and take them back in irons if necessary. The officials and farmers of the free states were also expected to turn out, call the dog, leave their work, and help catch these chattels and carry them to the southbound train. Daniel Webster was born in 1782 and Noah in 1758. Daniel was educated at Dartmouth College, where he was admitted in 1797. He taught school winters and studied summers, as many other great men have done since, until he knew about everything that anybody could. What Dan did not know, Noah did. Strange to say, Daniel was frightened to death when first called upon to speak a piece He says he committed dozens of pieces to memory and recited them to the woods and crags and crows and stone abutments of the New England farms, but could not stand up before a school and utter a word. In 1801, he studied law with Thomas W. Thompson, afterwards United States Senator. He read then for the first time that, Law is a rule of action prescribing what is right and prohibiting what is wrong. End quote. In eighteen twelve he was elected to Congress and in eighteen thirteen made his maiden speech. One of his most masterly speeches was made on economical and financial subjects and yet in order to get his blue broadcloth coat with brass buttons from the tailor-shop to wear while making the speech, He had to borrow $25. When the country has wanted a man to talk well on these subjects, it has generally been compelled to advance money to him before he could make a speech. Sometimes he has to be taken from the pawn shop. Webster, it is said, was the most successful lawyer after he returned to Boston that the state of Massachusetts has ever known and yet his mail was full of notices from banks down east announcing that he had overdrawn his account once he was hard pressed for means as he was trying to run a farm and running a farm costs money so he went to a bank to borrow he hated to do it because he had no special inducements to offer a bank or to make it hilariously loan him money how much did you think you would need mr webster asked the president cutting off some coupons as he spoke and making paper dolls of them well i could get along very well said webster in that deep resinous voice of his if i could have two thousand dollars "'Well, you remember,' said the banker, "'do you not, that you have $2,000 here "'that you deposited five years ago "'after you had dined with the governor of North Carolina?' "'No, I had forgotten about that,' said Webster. "'Give me a blank check without unnecessary delay.' "'We may learn from this "'that Mr. Webster was not a careful man "'in the matter of detail.' his speech on the 200th anniversary of the landing of the pilgrims was a good thing and found its way into the press of the time his speech at the laying of the cornerstone of the bunker hill monument and his eulogy of adams and jefferson were beautiful and thrilling daniel webster had a very large brain and used to loan his hat to brother senators now and then when their heads were painting them provided he did not want it himself his reply to robert y hayne of south carolina in eighteen thirty was regarded as one of his ablest parliamentary efforts hayne attacked new england and first advanced the doctrine of nullification which was even more dangerous than secession jefferson davis in eighteen sixty denying that he had ever advocated or favored such a doctrine Webster spoke extempore and people sent out for their lunch rather than go away in the midst of his remarks. Webster married twice but did not let that make any difference with his duty to his country. He tried to farm it some but did not amass a large sum owing to his heavy losses and trying year after year to grow Saratoga potatoes for the Boston market. No American foreign or domestic ever made a greater name for himself than daniel webster but he was not so good a penman as noah noah was the better pen writer noah webster also had the better command of language of the two those who have read his great work entitled webster's elementary spelling book or how one word led to another will agree with me that he was smart no one never lacked for a word by which to express himself he was a brainy man and a good speller one by one our eminent men are passing away mr webster has passed away napoleon bonaparte is no more and dr mary walker is fading away this has been a severe winter on red shirt and i have to guard against the night air a good deal myself It would ill become me, at this late date, to criticize Mr. Webster's work. A work that is now, I may say, in nearly every home and schoolroom in the land. It is a great book. I only hope that had Webster lived, he would have been equally fair in his criticism of my books. I hate to compare my books with Mr. Webster's, because it looks egotistical in me but although noah's book is larger than mine and has more literary attractions as a book to set a child on at the table it does not hold the interest of the reader all the way through he has introduced too many characters into his book at the expense of the plot it is a good book to pick up and while away at leisure hour perhaps but it is not a work that could rivet your interest till midnight While the fire went out and the thermometer stepped down to 47 degrees below zero, you do not hurry through the pages to see whether Reginald married the girl or not. Mr. Webster did not seem to care how the affair turned out. Therein consists the great difference between Noah and myself. He doesn't keep up the interest. A friend of mine at Sing Sing, who secured one of my books, said he never left his room till he had devoured it. He said he seemed chained to the spot. And if you can't believe a convict who is entirely out of politics, whom in the name of George Washington can you trust? Mr. Webster was certainly a most brilliant writer, though a little inclined, perhaps, to be wordy. I have discovered in some of his later books 118,000 words, no two of which are alike. This shows great fluency and versatility, it is true but we need something else the reader waits in vain to be thrilled by the author's wonderful word-painting there is not a thrill in the whole tome i had heard so much of mr webster that when i read his book i confess i was disappointed It is cold, methodical, dry, and dispassionate in the extreme, and one cannot help comparing it with the works of James Fenimore Cooper and Horace. As I said, however, it is a good book to pick up for the purpose of whiling away an hour. No one should travel without Mr. Webster's tale. Those who examine this tale will readily see why there were no flies on the author. He kept them off with this tale. It is a good book, as I say, to take up for a moment, or to read on the train, or to hold the door open on a hot day. I would never take a long railroad ride without it either. I would as soon forget my bottle of cough medicine. Mr. Webster's Speller had an immense sale. Ten years ago he had sold forty million copies, and yet it had this same defect. It was cold. "'dull, disconnected, and verbose. "'There was only one good thing in the book, "'and that was a little literary gem "'regarding a boy who broke in "'and stole the apples of a total stranger. "'The story was so good "'that I have often wondered "'whom Mr. Webster got to write it for him. "'The old man, it seems, "'at first told the boy "'that he had better come down "'as there was a draft in the tree, "'but the young sass-box,' Apple sass box i presume told him to avaunt at last the old man said calm down honey i am afraid the limb will break if you don't then as the boy still remained he told him that those were not eating apples that they were just common cooking apples and that there were worms in them but the boy said he didn't mind a little thing like that So then the old gentleman got irritated and called the dog and threw turf at the boy and at last saluted him with pieces of turf and decayed cabbages, and after the lad had gone away, the old man pried the bulldog's jaws open and found a mouthful of pantaloons and a freckle. I do not tell this, of course, in Mr. Webster's language, but I give the main points as they recur now to my mind. Though I have been a close student of Mr. Webster for years and have carefully examined his style, I am free to say that his ideas about writing a book are not the same as mine. Of course, it is a great temptation for a young author to write a book that will have a large sale, but that should not be all. We should have a higher object than that and strive to interest those who read the book. It should not be jerky and scattering in its statements. I do not wish to do an injustice to a great man who is now no more, a man who did so much for the world and who could spell the longest word without hesitation. But I speak of these things just as I would expect others to criticize my work. If one aspire to be the member of the literati of his day, he must expect to be criticized i have been criticized myself when i was in public life as a justice of the peace in the rocky mountains a man came in one day and criticized me so that i did not get over it for two weeks i might add though i dislike to speak of it now that mr webster was at one time a member of the legislature of massachusetts i believe that was the only time he ever stepped aside from the straight and narrow way A good many people do not know this, but it is true. Mr. Webster was also a married man, yet he never murmured or repined. End of chapter 23